This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. The scripture reading... The scripture reading for this morning is Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. It can be found on page 983 in that Black Pew Bible. Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Good morning again, everyone. If I, if I didn't get the chance to say it, my name is Mark, and I'm one of the, one of the pastors here. I have a new microphone to work around this morning. Uh, before, before I begin, I want to hold up uh, this card and just say a couple words. We have, as, as a church, we have cultivation in our purpose statement, and that's intentional because the Christian life is constant cultivation. Cultivation of virtue, cultivation of mercy, cultivation of love for one another and love for God, cultivation of gratitude and generosity, cultivation of our love for the word of God, and cultivation of a life that's submitted to the risen Christ. The, the women in our church are cultivating a number of things on Monday nights right now. They're cultivating fellowship and spiritual friendship, they're cultivating a love for the word and a deeper devotion to Jesus through our women's Bible study on Monday nights. And I want, I want to highlight this, these two opportunities for men's formation in our church because we've never gathered as a group of men and worshiped and prayed before. That's something that we've never done as a church. And I want, to highlight, I want to highlight it and point to it because I want the men in this church to begin cultivating a vision for masculine prayer and worship. I want them to begin to cultivate what it would look like to sing and worship God and pray for one another and bow before him and commune with him together. That's what this men's worship event is about. And if you're a man in this church, I want you to know that I'll, I'll use that evening for more than only worship and prayer. I'm also going to use it to lay out a framework for spiritual formation in our church for our men over the next like 18 months. So there'll be some information that's worthwhile to come. If you have a desire to grow at all uh, as a follower of Christ and you're a man, come. March 31st, Friday night, 7.30 p.m. Come. Cultivation means that we're interested in growth. 
right? We're paying attention and we're attending to growth just like a gardener. And we're not obsessed with growth numbers-wise here, but we are obsessed with spiritual growth here, right? We want to see each of us raised up into full maturity in Christ. We want to see God cultivate things in our hearts. In the scriptures, he even calls us his field, his workmanship. We're growing men and women here with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of work that we're doing. That is what spiritual formation is. It's growing in godliness, growing in Christ-likeness, growing in conformity to God's word. We don't want to coast, and we don't want to get stuck on autopilot. So come Friday night, March 31st, and find out kind of where the men in the church are headed. That's it. Would you, all, would you all bow your heads with me as I jump into our sermon this morning? So, Spirit of the living God, we ask you to come right now. Um, you, know, you know the places in our hearts that are twisted. You know the places in our hearts that are hidden. You know the places in our hearts that we are kicking against the goads, the places in our hearts that we are bristling against your authority. You know. You know the places that we have succeeded in making ourselves completely unaware of sin in our lives, or making ourselves completely unaware of Uh, needed kind of growth and transformation in our hearts and lives. So Spirit of God, we, we announce our insufficiency to do anything about that. We can't change ourselves or our friends. We can't do anything without you. We need you to convict us. We need you to confront us. We need you to comfort us and help us command whatever you will and then grant what you command. Give us the spirit. Give us the grace. Give us a posture of humility to listen and obey. I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says, Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. In this text, Paul's explaining that Moses came down from the mountain where he received the two tablets and the Ten Commandments, and his face was glowing with the glory of God. His face was glowing, and the glory of God made his face shine so much that he had to put a veil over his face. And Paul, a few verses later, explains the significance of this veil for the Corinthian Christians and for us today, right now. He says in verse 14 and following, but their minds were hardened. 
For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're in this series called Jesus is dot, 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 fill in the blank. And this week, the blank that's being filled in is that Jesus is glorious. He's glorious. And in Moses' day, his face glowed with a glory that isn't as glorious as the risen Christ. And even then, there was a veil between the glory of God and the people. So my burden today, my burden today is that we would see that what we need most is to understand. What we need most today is to see. What we need most today is what we need every single day. And we need to see that veil removed. We need to see it removed. We need to see the glory of God. When someone, when someone turns to the Lord, the, the separation, the veil is gone. It's gone. What we're going to do today is try to see more of that veil dissolve and to be able to look, to look at Jesus with unveiled face and behold the glory of the Lord and be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. I want us to just move the needle, right? I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to see us move the needle just a little bit on how beautiful Jesus is to us. Because I don't know exactly where you would put yourself in that kind of language. I don't know how much you look at Jesus with pure wonder and adoration and devotion. I don't know how much you love him. I don't know how much you love his words. I don't know how much you set him or you see him as your savior or you see him as your Lord. Or how much your heart swells with affection and obedience for him, or how much you see everything in your life as a merciful gift from a loving God. But I do know, I do know that I know that I know that I know that however glorious you see Jesus, my longing, my burden is you would see him a little more glorious today when you leave than when you got here. A little, a little bit more. I want the needle to move for myself badly. And I want the needle to move for you badly. I want to see it move for our church. I want to see the glory of Christ. And I want us to be transformed as we see it from one degree of glory to the next. And we'll take whatever the Spirit's willing to give us today. And then we'll come back next week and ask for more. Or we'll get up early in the morning and open the Word of God and ask for more. More understanding, more change, more grace to obey, more life transformation, more of His glory. Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. And when you look at him, when you truly behold him, you do not stay the same. You don't by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to make three points today from this text. I'm going to talk about Jesus is glorious because he's how we know God. Jesus is glorious in that by him, all things were created. And Jesus is glorious as the redeemer, as the head of the church. The first glorious thing about Jesus that I want us to get a hold of today is that Jesus is how you can see God. Jesus and his life on this planet and his death and resurrection is how we can see the living God who's existed since before the beginning of time. 
Verse 15 in this text tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in that moment, it's always tempting for us in church to just rush past a statement like this. After all, we come here every single week. We hear the Bible read. We're familiar with facts of the Christian faith. But we easily forget that no one, no one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. That's what John's gospel says. In chapter one, the writer says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the father's side. He has made him known. So do you want to observe? Do you have a desire to observe what God's like? Look at Jesus. Do you want to take in the way that God behaves? Look at Jesus. Do you want to make yourself aware of the kinds of things that God does and make yourself aware of the kinds of things that God says? Look at Jesus. Are you curious this morning about what the God of the universe would look like if he took on a human body? What would he do? What would he say? Then look at Jesus, Jesus himself, himself standing in front of a woman in the gospels, in front of, an, in front of a Samaritan woman says, God is spirit. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And in 1 Timothy, Paul closes a prayer with these words. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Again, in 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes, he who is blessed and the only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen, or can see to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Christ makes the unseen God seen. Christ is the image. Jesus Christ is God seeable. And broadly speaking, there's often two issues that we have when we are told to see God in the person of Jesus Christ. Most of the time we see Jesus like the Pharisees saw him. Or we see Jesus like the disciples did at their worst. Both of those groups in the ancient world would have claimed to want to see Yahweh, want to see God. They both would have been uh, bold like Peter in exclaiming what they wanted, that they wanted nothing more than to see the living God, really see him. And when their moment came, neither of them recognized God in the flesh. The Pharisees crucified him because he exposed their self-righteousness and the disciples were constantly disappointed. He wasn't bigger and he wasn't stronger and he wasn't calling down fire from heaven right in front of them. Many of us, many of us are just like the Pharisees. We look at Jesus through the pages of this book and we get irritated by his simplicity or by his humility. It offends us. We overcomplicate issues with legalistic questions. We try really, really hard to be really, really specific about where the boundary is, not so we can stay away from it, but so we can get as close to it as possible without crossing over. Our pharisaical hearts walk up to God in the flesh and ask questions like, well, 
You say I have to love my neighbor like myself. I mean, like, who, who, who's my neighbor? Who even is that guy? How am I supposed to know that? And Jesus patiently responds with, okay, okay. You're confused about what I'm saying. Your neighbor is that guy, that one on the ground, on the sidewalk, beaten up, laying right in front of you. Your neighbor is that guy, the one that you don't want to help at all. Your neighbor is that guy, that guy that you're despised, that guy that you are disgusted by. He's your neighbor. The Pharisees didn't have eyes to see God, and we can understand this because Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, talked right to them. He looked them right in the eye, and, didn't, and they didn't want anything to do with him. The rich young ruler wanted to see God, so he asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, God the Son incarnate told him what to do. Eternal life was standing in front of him. In, in Jesus is life and light. It's standing right in front of him, within reach. And he turned up his nose at Jesus and Jesus' answer. Verse 15 of our text sounds like something good, but if we don't want what Jesus has to offer, the truth is that we don't want to see God at all, at least not on his terms. The disciples wanted the glory of Jesus to be different. They wanted fire from heaven. They wanted to be at his right hand. They wanted to know who's going to be the greatest when your kingdom comes. They wanted the glory to be a spectacle. And Jesus looked at them and said, you don't know what you're asking for, but you will. You will when you see me get tortured. And some of us in this room say we want to see God or think we want to see God, but when we see him covered in spit and blood and scabs and dying, hanging naked on a cross, we get skittish. We get the shakes. If that's the road, if that's the road that God himself took, what's going to happen to me? What's, going to, what's my road going to look like? And family, we worship a crucified Savior crucified. It's no wonder that when he says, take up your cross and follow me, that many people say, thanks, but no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. The life that Jesus walked and the death that Jesus died is unthinkable. They are unimaginable to us. Who would look at that and think, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the life I want. That's the life for me. But if you want to know God, John says, Jesus is how God makes himself Known. If you wonder what God looks like, then look at Jesus. There he is in his poverty, in his humility, in his uh, bended down on, on his knees, serving his disciples. There he is dying. That man, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is also glorious as the agent of creation. It's through Jesus that everything was created. Now, there, there's a lot of glorious things to look at in creation itself. And glory itself isn't a common word in our day. It's not the kind of word that we use in conversations a lot. But I would submit to you that we are intimately acquainted with glory. The definition of glory that I like the most is heft. 
is weight, substance, essence. You see, everything has a glory. Everything has a glory. Kind of like everything has, everything has gravity. But because the gravity of the earth is so massive, the gravity that other objects possess doesn't mean much to us. We never ever notice it. We don't feel the effect of it. Everything has a glory, and some things have more or less glory than others. And the glory of something is its essence, is its substance. It's the weightiness of a thing. Think of it this way. The glory, the glory of something is the quality that it possesses, that if it's gone, that's the thing that you miss. That's what you miss about something when it's gone. For instance, if next year the Chiefs don't win a single game, you're going to miss the glory of them being champions. At least some of us will. In, in older translations of the Bible, there was a sin referred to as vainglory. Vainglory. There can be glories of things in our lives that are innocent, and there can be things in our lives that are sins that also have their own shininess and weight and heft and glory to them that draw us away. But vainglory is an inordinate pride in oneself for one's achievements and excessive vanity. See, our achievements have a glory to them. Your accomplishments have a glory, and they can be full of sinful pride, or they can be interacted with and related to as gifts from God. What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, then why do you boast like you didn't receive it? Pride, conceit, vainglory, we know what they feel like. It feels good to be proud and conceited and selfish. At least it feels good at first. And then the Bible tells us it leads to destruction. But good gifts from God have a glory to them. That's why we like them. We are drawn to glory like moths to a flame. If you've set your hope on something, if you set your hope on something to satisfy you, that you want to experience and you don't get to have it, you're missing the glory of it. If you're planning, if you're planning a wonderful trip to see the magnificence of the ocean and somebody tells you that you don't get to go, but don't worry, instead you get to go to the Lake of the Ozarks, you're going to miss the glory of the ocean. That's what you ache for. I don't care what it is in your life that you love, that you take glory in. That thing is only a reflection. It's only a mirror. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The stars are announcing the glory of God. The moon and planets are communicating something about God. Galaxies and pulsars and quasars have a job. They have a job. Their job is to proclaim the glory of God. And everything, everything we see in creation explains or, or proclaims the glory of God to us the same way that the moon shows us the glory of the sun. It's, it's, it's a reflection of the glory of God. And every gift in your life is, me, in your life is meant, to, meant to be a stepping stone to pursue the greater glory, to give all thanks and all praise to God himself. We want to be grateful people. I think that we, we should enjoy delicious food. We should, we should weep with joy as we watch our children growing up. And we, 
We should love the amazing things in the natural world that, that we live in, like mountains, like oceans. They should have an effect on us. It should blow our minds when we see bugs that look like flowers. They look just like flowers. That should blow our minds, but it should spring us. It should, it should take us somewhere. We should enjoy it in a way that's fitting. And the way that it's fitting is if it aims us back up to the living God in a way that links us to deeper gratitude to God, that he created everything. And right here, we see that everything here, everything is because of God the Son. Things that we can't see and things that we can see Things on earth that are physical and observable and things in the spiritual realm that we can't see or measure or touch. And you can take it even a step further. Things like power, things you can't grab a hold of or measure, things like authority and abilities and gifts and intellect and energy and strength, all the spiritual angels and the spiritual realities that exist and are very real and beyond our natural vision. All of it was created not only for him, but also they were created through him. The language of firstborn of all creation is establishing his preeminence. The preeminence of Jesus in both time and rank, right? God the Son wasn't created, but he has a firstborn status of rank over everything. He ranks above all. He ranks the highest. The glory of all created things is astounding. If we take five minutes to look at what God has made, it really does confound us. And this text says that Jesus is the source and the first principle and the power for all of it. By him were all things made. And without him was nothing made that was made. There's nothing else weighty like God's weighty. There's nothing else that, nothing else that has the kind of substance that God possesses. All the glory in the universe points to Jesus. He created the universe and he sustains the universe. And he holds everything together. And in verse 18, we see that Christ is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the body and the body is the church. And here, I want to highlight that Jesus is glorious because he redeems a people. He redeems a people, a body, the church. He's great and glorious. He's the great and glorious redeemer. God didn't have any raw materials when he spoke the universe into existence. He created out of nothing. He created and creation rebelled and Jesus redeems. He rescues. Jesus is the lamb that was slain so that we could see and know God. So that we could be with him. We could love his glory instead of hating it. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and Jesus Christ made us alive again. The church is called the bride of Christ, and Jesus cleanses it. Jesus purifies us, cleanses us, and makes us a spiritual household, a family. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 
Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree. Then in instructions to pastors in Acts chapter 20, it says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, knowing that you were, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or like gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He did that to make a people. He did that to redeem a people, to rescue a bride. And this act of redemption is his glory his weight, his heft, his substance. This is who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus does. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's not like anybody else's name. It's above every other name. So at his name, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Colossians 2 tells us you, If you're in this room this morning and you put your faith in Christ, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us in its legal demands. That that record of debt and those legal demands, he set aside and he did that by nailing it to the cross. Jesus is glorious, and he's glorious as the head of the body, his church, that he redeems, that he purchases with his own blood. This is why we see in the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ that thousands upon thousands and multitudes upon multitudes are gathered around him in the New Jerusalem, constantly, loudly shouting all the time, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is the Redeemer that gave his own blood to make the church, gave his own blood to save you if you're in Christ this morning. He's glorious. He's glorious. Jesus is the image of God. He's how we get to see God. It's how we get to know God. Jesus is the agent and source of all created things. He was in the beginning, and by him, God created everything. And Jesus is the redeemer, the one who purifies his bride, the church. He redeems us by the blood of his cross, as we've seen. And he also reconciles all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. N.T. Wright says in his commentary in this section of Colossians that creation is God's work, Christ's work. Though spoilt 
by sin, it still belongs to God and God still has plans for it. Redemption is not an invasion from a different or hostile realm. The Lord of this the Lord of this world has come to claim his rightful possession. And as we approach Easter, my burden, my desire is to help us get on the edge of our seat for the resurrection of Jesus. I want to help us understand that God's on a mission. He's been on a mission since the garden and God's mission has a church. That's us. God has us. We are slaves to Christ and this is his program, his plan, his sovereign purpose and we get to be involved. We get to be a part of it. In verse 20, it says that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. And I want us to understand something. That work has been inaugurated. It has been initiated. The cross of Christ was the beginning of the end of death and evil and all wickedness and brokenness. All of it. Some days we believe that truth and other days we don't. Sometimes that's really hard to remember and I get that. I get that. But that's what we want to do for each other. We want to remind each other and point to the glory of Jesus. We get bogged down in the nitty gritty of of, uh, life's disappointments or struggles. Our lives are hard and we forget that Christ is on a cosmic mission to get all the glory through reconciling all things to himself. The word all in this text is, is here something like eight times in six Verses. There's no getting around it. There's no escape from God's wholesale, whole creation campaign to recreate a new humanity. But the way God does this isn't by asking for a do-over. God doesn't take a mulligan. He does something better. The living God takes all of our sin and all of our failure and all of our mistakes and all of our brokenness and all of our weakness. He takes them all and recrafts them and repurposes them and reorganizes them for our good and for his glory. God isn't pushing reset and wiping the slate clean. He's reconciling and redeeming the darkest and most wicked realities in our lives or ones that we've come up against. He's reweaving everything that's been torn. He's resetting every bone that's been broken. He's mending every fabric fabric that's been ripped and he's healing every gaping wound. This new humanity is the church is the bride of Christ. And one day God won't have a small faithful remnant of people amongst all the population. One day the only population will exist to be his people. All the people will be his people. One day everybody, everybody will be singing his praises and experiencing unadulterated joy in the glory of God. I feel like I always preach the same sermon. But Revelation 21 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. The rightful owner of this world is Jesus Christ. The rightful owner of your life, your soul, your body, your heart, your emotions, your proclivities, your instincts, your desires, your affections. The rightful owner of all of those things is Jesus Christ, body and soul. Christ is Lord. God isn't slow or sluggish, 
but he's patient. And at just the right time, this world, as we know it, will end and a new heavens and a new earth will begin. And right now, Jesus is moving. The Spirit of God is working, bringing people from death to life. So don't be silent about what Christ has done in your life. In Christ, in Christ, all things hold together. Jesus was sustaining the universe as crowds were screaming, crucify him. Jesus was sustaining the universe when Pilate delivered him to be crucified. Jesus was holding together the cat of nine tails that was, that was ripping flesh from his bone. Jesus was holding together the splinters that dug into the wounds on his back as he hung on the cross. What must God be like? You want to see God? That's what he's like. That's what he's like. He demonstrates his love for us in, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When you and I hated him, when you were his enemy, he loved you and gave himself for you. He loved you enough to die in your place. He loved you enough to die in your place so that you could die too, but be raised like he is raised. Paul says it this way in Romans, the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I want to do, I don't do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And Jesus dies so that that body of death can die. And then he's raised so that we can be raised. The body of sin in our lives, our flesh will stay dead because it's been crucified with Christ. And the life that we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for each of us. As we move, as we move in the service to our time to take communion, man, I would invite everybody in this room to reflect on those realities. I would invite everyone in this room to reflect on the glory of Jesus. The weight the heft, the substance. And I would invite us, I would invite us to ask the Spirit of God to cause the glory of Christ, the heft of Christ, to fall into our hearts and souls in such a way that it dispels and displaces other glories. Would, would our affection for other things diminish as Jesus drops to the bottom of our affections and our hearts and push other things to the side. Before we take communion, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And then he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. The way we take communion at Redeemer is we, we break a piece of bread off and then we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups have wine in them and the glassware has juice 
uh, we'll have two stations down here in front of me, one station up in the balcony, and then one station further to the left over here that is single serve and gluten free. And then in addition to that, we also have prayer ministers that will be underneath this stained glass window who'd love to pray for anybody about anything, anytime. And they're here at the end of every service. If you put all of your hope and faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to come forward and take communion this morning. But if you don't, we invite you to stay in your seat. There's uh, there's guided kind of prayers in the back of the pew in front of you if you've never prayed before. I mean, if you're a Christian here this morning, um, would you invite the Holy Spirit to expose places in your heart that Christ's glory has become common or boring or unattractive? I'm going to pray for us, and then uh, the musicians are going to come up and the servers are going to come up. Uh, would you all bow your heads with me as I pray? Jesus, <clears throat> risen Christ, would you take more ground in our hearts and lives this morning? Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convict us and grab a hold of us, arrest us? Would you make your glory more beautiful to us by the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you... Uh, Give us the humility and the grace to answer your invitations to repent of sin. Would you give us the grace to recognize areas that we are resistant, that we are bristling, that we are kicking against the goads? Jesus, would you take more ground in our minds, in our hearts, in our affection, in our plans for our life, and in, in our um, in our day-to-day routines, would you capture us with your glory? We invite you, Spirit of God. Awaken us. Awaken us. Strengthen our faith, I ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen.